Welcome to Between the Covers, Mark Bookman. Thanks for having me, Avi. I'd like to start out with your background. Where'd you grow up? I like to say that I grew up on the, uh, the hard scrabble streets of Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, which is just kind of an inside joke because it couldn't have been more of a kind of an upper middle class uh, neighborhood. And it just, a, you know, a great place, a great place to grow up and, and about the furthest thing from hard scrabble. Is it Philadelphia? It is just outside of Philadelphia. What drew you to practicing law? So, you know, I, I don't have a real good answer for that. I, I was in college. I was really struggling between going to uh, English grad school and law school. And, uh, and, and ultimately, I guess I decided that I could be a lawyer who wrote, but I couldn't be a writer who practiced law. And so, um, and so I, I went to law school. I, I certainly have not regretted it because I'm sort of a non-prolific writer anyway. So I don't think I could have made a, a career out of just writing. And, and I've, I've, I've loved being, I don't refer to myself as a lawyer generally. I love being a public defender. Mm. And then a, I guess a death penalty lawyer or someone who runs a nonprofit never really thought of myself as a lawyer. Mm. So do you credit something in your background or the way you were raised or your family upbringing with influencing your being drawn to public defender life and working with the death penalty? I've thought about this a lot and I honestly can't come up with a single thing that I can connect from my background. My father was a CPA. My brother was a CPA. My mother was a secretary. It was a fantastic and his well, a fantastic family, um, but nothing that nothing that that would have led me to be, you know, a public defender for 28 years. That's for sure. I wonder if part of it is you were brought up to trust your own mind. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's it. And I and I, you know, I've always kind of had a progressive streak to me, I suppose. Um, for for some time, I actually thought about being a prosecutor because I was I was sort of so progressive. I bordered on being a, a, a communist, frankly. I guess you can still I guess you can still say that without being arrested. And uh, and and I thought you know, the power is in the prosecution. If you want to make social change, you make it, uh, it being a, a public defender, you're, you're, you're reactive, right? Your, your client gets arrested and you, you have to react to that. Uh, so, so being a prosecutor, you could decarcerate, you could work on, on, on fair bail, you could not overcharge, you could not seek the death penalty. Um, but I, I was, I was, I was uh, uh, taught early on, or 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 it was strongly suggested to me that you can't make those kinds of changes unless you're the elected prosecutor. And coming out of law school, you're not going to be the elected prosecutor. So I, I was led to be a public defender, and clearly that kind of suited my personality. I like the point that you're making that I think we'll circle back to, which is the role of power and who makes these decisions, and and. And I hear what you're saying about could could that position as prosecutor have made me more powerful within being able to make social change in this in this realm. I see what you're saying. Um, so, what did lead you to fo start to focus on capital punishment? So, you know, I think you could fairly look at my career 
uh, 28 years as a public defender and then running a nonprofit for uh, uh, 12 more. And you could say, God, this guy is not very ambitious. Um, but in truth, I am actually very ambitious, but in a, in a, in a limited world, which is that as a public defender, doing, doing capital work was the most serious, consequential work that you could do. So, you know, as, a, as an ambitious public defender, I felt like I, I, I wanted to do the, the, the most serious work I could do. And frankly, the death penalty is the only moral question in the law. Uh, you know, you could do courts, you could do torts, you could do contracts, you could do uh, uh, property, you could do criminal law. Um, the only moral question that, that, that we have, uh, regrettably, is whether someone should live or die. And that's that death penalty question. So I think for both of those reasons, I was drawn to, to this work. So your book, Descending Spiral, is made up of 12 essays that each highlight a brutal dimension of what's wrong within this capital punishment system. So my first question is kind of a personal nature of how do you wrestle with the facts of some of these cases and what they invoke in you? It must be that you become aware of the worst crimes committed by those who commit them. And on the other side, you have a close eye view of institutionalized racism and violence in your work. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sorry, Avi. Go ahead. If you finish your question. Um, the, the truth is that uh, when you do the work I do from, from my side of the aisle, you can get, you can get very caught up in the horror um, that your own client is going through. Um, it, you know, either an innocent person wrongly accused of a terrible crime or someone who, who may have committed a terrible crime, but with an awful upbringing. Uh, there's, there's many, you know, uh, avenues that you can go down from, from the defense side and, and, and lose track of the kind of devastation that's been wrought on the other side. Um, there are real victims in this in this work, uh, victims on on all sides, oftentimes, and it's really important to to, to maintain that balance. Um, you know, being so deeply engaged in 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 a case where there is this kind of horror on both sides, it it can be difficult. And I, I, I you know I, I think. You have to maintain that balance and you have to, you know, if you if you get too caught up in it, you're not effective anymore. So it's a fine line that has to be drawn. Do you think that your uh, experience of it over time has changed how you do that? Yes, the the, the it's a really good question The um, you know. The work is, I tell this to people all the time, especially young lawyers, that the work is not for everybody. That if you find yourself too obsessed or too caught up uh, um, in, in the work to the point where you can't be effective, then you should look for other work because there's so much good work out there. There's, there's you know, discrimination work and landlord tenant work and, and gay rights work and, and, and environmental work. I mean, there's just tons of of great things that you could do as a lawyer uh, uh, and, and help with, with whatever social change you feel is appropriate. Um, for me, uh, I, 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 I knew soon, I knew early on that you can't be 
you can't be obsessively caught up in this work. I, I was a public defender for 10 years before I started doing death penalty work. And I, I think I think that helped me because, you know, when you're when you're on trial with a client who is facing, you know, 10 years in prison or 20 years in prison or frankly, six months in jail, that is stressful. And if you can't manage that stress, you can't do the work. So I, I was lucky uh, not to go into it right away. And I think, frankly, no one should go into it right away. So I'd like to start to kind of map out what the land looks like around the death penalty, if you can help with that. And I'd like to start with a clear understanding for folks who don't know a lot about the death penalty process. What makes a crime, usually it involves homicide, a capital crime, meaning when is the death penalty on the table? So let me start with the broader picture, which is the steady decline of the death penalty. It's really, I think, important for people to know that 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 kind of state by state, uh, we're getting we're getting rid of the death penalty. In, in Europe, you cannot join the European Union if you have a death if you have capital punishment on the books. You can't join the European Union. So most of the civilized world has already gotten rid of the death penalty, and state by state. We're getting rid of it or dramatically narrowing it, as Oregon has. Uh, um, so, so it's important to keep that in mind. How a case becomes a, a, a capital case in a, in a state that has that on the books is it varies state by state. But for the most part, uh, it requires a, a, a serious homicide and then usually what's called an aggravating factor, which is which is something that that takes the case out of the realm of, uh, uh, I, I hate to use this word, but it's a word that's used in the law, an average homicide. In other words, if you kill uh, 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 someone who is underage or you kill a law enforcement officer, uh, you commit an act of terrorism. So th there, are, there are some aspects to the homicide that take it beyond the realm of that quote unquote average homicide. And then you've got a death penalty case. In how many states in the U.S. do you have a death penalty case in that situation? So I should know this off the top of my head, but I think right now we're at, we're at 27, um, 27 states that still have it. But 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 slowly and surely, we really are, you know, it, over the last few years, uh, states have gotten rid of it. New Hampshire, Connecticut, Delaware, Virginia. Um, so 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 uh, and then, of course, there are governors uh, who are uh, not have, have declared moratoriums on the death penalty, not to execute anyone. And so, you know, slowly but surely, the death penalty is becoming a dinosaur, pretty much. What do you credit that with? That's a, it, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but let me, let me give kind of a, of a long-winded answer. In the in the late '60s and early '70s, the the death penalty became very very unpopular, and and so it 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 decreased and decreased. There hadn't been an execution in any state in in I think five or six years from 1965 to 1972, and then the United States Supreme Court looked at the statutes and they said these statutes are not able to separate the worst from the people that don't deserve the death penalty. And so they, they found the death penalty unconstitutional because the statutes were not, 
doing the, the, the right job. And as soon as that happened, the states, uh, uh, all the legislatures began rewriting their statutes because they wanted the death penalty. And, and, and even, though, even though we hadn't had any executions in seven years, uh, the, the states couldn't wait to get it back. And that's because they didn't like it that the United States Supreme Court had taken something away from them. It's like a little child losing his dessert. He, he, maybe he hadn't eaten it, but now that it was taken away, he couldn't wait to get it back. Okay, move forward 50 years. Now we're getting rid of the death penalty slowly but surely. And it's fair to ask, what is the difference? And the difference is that 50 years ago, we didn't know about people being wrongly convicted. We didn't have DNA. We didn't know that prosecutors hid evidence. We didn't know that eyewitnesses can make mistakes. We didn't know that confessions could be coerced and false. Now we have all this knowledge. We know that people have been wrongly convicted. We know that confessions can be false. We, we also know more about uh, um, the backgrounds of the people who have committed these crimes. So I think now we have this body of knowledge that we didn't have 50 years ago. And so I'm, I think now when we get rid of the death penalty, it's informed. And that's the difference. And that's what I think is going gonna, is gonna to ultimately end the death penalty information. So the term wrongful conviction, you referred to it just now, um, can sometimes be considered in an overly simplistic definition. Can you, um, what do people need to understand when you're talking about wrongful conviction? You just referred to some of the. Yeah, this is a real pet peeve of mine because, you know, I mean, everybody is against innocent people being in prison. I mean, who could not be against innocent people being, being in prison. Um, I think so. So I think sometimes when we talk about wrongful convictions, it's, we're, we're very narrow in thinking it's just, you know, this guy was in Poughkeepsie at the time. It's my phrase that I like to use, but the truth is wrongful convictions should be seen much more broadly than that. I, I don't think, I mean, the essays talk about this. I, I don't know who would condone having a lawyer you know, who's drinking a quart of vodka a night representing someone on trial for their life uh, or, or a jury who is overtly racist or a judge who's overtly racist for that matter. So I think, you know, when we when we think about wrongful convictions, we need to think about a just justice system, a, a, a system that's going to that's going to fairly if we are going to have a death penalty. Um, and there's obviously a lot of questions that we should ask about whether we should or not. Um, at least we have to have a fair system to adjudicate uh, uh, who, who gets it and who doesn't. So I, I'd like to think that that when we think of wrongful convictions, we, we have a, a broader sense of it than just somebody who didn't commit the crime. You know, one of the threads that goes through your book um, is just how much power rests in the hands of one person. Often the judge subjectively interpreting the law or making determinations of motivation or even assessing mental health um, without the credentials to do that. That seems to be one of the threads is when you put the power for, of those decisions in one person's hands, that's when everything um, can go so wrong. Can you speak a little bit about that? For example, your first essay was about when a a jury determined there should not be the death penalty and a judge went against them. It, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of essays in the book about, about uh, uh, judges um, 
kind of taking matters into their own hands. This is really, I mean, so the first essay talks about, about overruling jury uh, 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 verdicts. And, and, and thankfully, we're seeing, we're seeing less and less of that. The, 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 the most prominent states that, that had that rule were, were Florida and Alabama. They're, they're finally seeing the end of it, although the United States Supreme Court has had an opportunity to uh, uh, find that unconstitutional, find the fact that a judge can overrule a jury unconstitutional in a couple of Alabama cases, and they've chosen not to do that, which is regrettable. But uh, and then there was another essay where where a judge was kind of an overt white supremacist um, and, 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 and sitting in judgment over a Jewish defendant in the death penalty case. And and uh, and, and that's, you know, had to had to go through the courts as well. So judges have this this huge power. They also have kind of a much more subtle power uh, that, that they have in every case, which is which is, you know, the, the way they make rulings and, and, and even, even, uh, even facial expressions. And, and there's so much discretion in a judge's uh, uh, hands. It can be scary if we're not picking judges fairly. And, and something that I think is important to point out, and I think I'm, I might get to it in my afterward, is, you know, I, I don't want it to seem for anybody that reads this book that I've cherry picked some of the worst cases, um, it, it, you know, the, the white supremacist judge and the and the and the judge who is overruling jury verdicts in Pennsylvania, we had uh, something called Porngate, which was a very it sounds awful, but it was actually Porngate is actually a nice way to phrase it. It was a bunch of emails going back and forth between justices on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and lawyers in the Department of Justice in, in Pennsylvania. And, and um, so the, the, the press kind of seized on the idea that these emails were pornographic, but they didn't talk enough about what they were really about, which was misogynistic and racist. So calling it Porngate was actually a nice way to phrase it. Ultimately, the scandal made two Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices resign from the Supreme Court. So I, I, it's important for your listeners to know, you know, this isn't just a one-off. Um, you know, we're electing judges uh, uh, who, who oftentimes will run on the, on the platform of being pro-death penalty, even though they're going to have to rule on death penalty cases. So judges have a, a lot of power, and, and, and sometimes it's used very, very regrettably. But, you know, while I'm on this kind of rant, I will also point out that prosecutors have even more power oftentimes. They're the ones deciding whether to seek death. Um, and they're the ones oftentimes caught with their with their, you know, their 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 hands in the in the in the candy basket or whatever that phrase is, where they get caught, you know, not turning over the 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 necessary uh, um, police reports or evidence that might um you know weigh heavily in the in the balance for for a, a death penalty uh, uh client so prosecutors have a huge amount of, of influence on what cases are capital and how those cases are resolved well it brings up the sort of emotional question you speak to in the beginning of the book about these kinds of cases 
um, evoke a kind of our worst instincts towards vengeance and anger and fear. And that's what reminded me of what you're talking about is when individuals make decisions to take, how do I say, prevent, prevent a fair process. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Well, let me just say, you know, the reason the death penalty exists, there, there's, there's two legal bases for the death penalty. One is deterrence. And that has been shown over and over not to be the case. In other words, the death penalty simply does not deter. And, and not only do the statistics back that up, but common sense should back it up as well. There's, there's two kinds of people that commit murder. Um, one are the kind of people that don't intend to be caught. And for them, a life sentence is going to certainly deter someone who doesn't want to be caught. Uh, as much as the death penalty. And the other kind of person that commits a murder is someone that's frankly not in their right mind. Either they're uh, uh, drunk or high or impaired in some way. Uh, they may have organic brain damage. Uh, they might be emotionally overwrought. Uh, whatever reason it is, they're not thinking clearly. So, you know, it, obviously deterrence is not going to work for those folks. Um, the other reason that we have a death penalty is for retribution. Retribution is really vengeance. And, uh, and, and the Supreme Court has, has, has said that that's acceptable. And so, you know, your question is a good one, which is, you know, who does not feel anger when we hear about a horrible, a horrible murder? I, everyone's first instinct is, boy, you know, I really want to wring that guy's neck or, or whatever, whatever your, your uh, uh, thoughts of vengeance can be. And so, you know, that's not a way to run a justice system. And we've got to be a little more, a little more clear headed about it. And, and, you know, two of the essays deal with in, in very different aspects with a, a, a horrible, horrible crime by a man named Andre Thomas. But Mr. Thomas is profoundly mentally ill. And so, uh, you know, we've got to be able to, to separate out the visceral anger from a case and be able to look at how profoundly mentally ill someone might be. And in, 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 in Andre Thomas's case, we're talking about someone so ill that he has blinded himself. He took out one eye, uh, um, shortly after this, this uh, uh, awful crime and his other, he blinded himself some years later uh, while, while on appeal. The crime itself, you know, reaped of mental illness. He killed his, his wife and one of his children and one of her children um, by using three separate knives to take out their hearts. And then he put the hearts in his pocket and went home with them. Uh, this is a man with a long history of mental health problems. And of course, that crime, as viscerally horrible as it is, also smacks of, you know, profound mental illness. And that's that's where retribution comes in for people that that can't see the mental illness or don't want to see it. You're reminding me of um, a writer that I was watching speak yesterday who says there's two versions of every story. One is the 
the whole story that comes through the heart and the other is the anger story. And this sounds like the anger story. And the, his point was, when you go with the story of the anger, it never transforms into anything but anger. Yeah. You don't learn anything from it. It has no moral value if, if you stay there. You're reminding me of, um, of that. It's it, that this legalized vengeance leads to nothing but more vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, I, I, I mean, the, 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 the quote in the book, and I, I sure don't want to mess it up. So I'm just going to, just going to look at it right now to make sure I get it exactly right. It, it's, it's only part of a great Martin Luther King quote, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Uh, I, I really think that that, that quote does sum up the death penalty. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for victims. I never, ever speak for victims. But uh, the death penalty is really is more violence. If that's something that, that the victims want, so be it. But it, it, is, it, is pure, it is pure vengeance when it comes down to it. So to shift a little bit, I've read that Washington state has banned the death penalty. I think you were referring to this before as the overwhelming evidence is that it is inherently racist and it is impossible to apply it in a legally valid manner. I'm referring back to something you said throughout your book, the statistics of who is executed and who is not in your examples of racist judges, jurors, and even defense attorneys. Um, where do you think in the United States as a whole, at a policy level, that being formally acknowledged is going. So, um, you know, when I when I wrote these essays, I tried to write. I tried to pick a topic to write. I would write about about a, a, a bad lawyer and a racist judge and it, and and a, and a bad juror and a prosecutor who 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 withheld evidence. I tried to I tried to uh, um, pick a topic. And then kind of expound on it in, in an essay. But the one the one thing that ran through almost every one of these essays is racism. I mean, that's the that's the one thread that you cannot take out of the death penalty. It's it's virtually impossible. So, you know, I, I, I think this country has has really, you know, taken a close look at itself and uh, all this, you know, I mean, the, the the hostility towards the Black Lives Matter movement and that and 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 the critical race theory, which is really nothing more than teaching honest history to students, uh, and and so we're taking a we're taking for the first time I think I, I honestly I really feel this way for the first time we're taking an honest look at 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 our history and 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 at what you know how we've gotten to this place and. This issue of racism in the death penalty came uh, uh, right in front of the United States Supreme Court in 19, I guess it was 87, um, in, in a case called McCleskey versus Kemp, where, the, where there were statistics showing pretty convincingly that there was racism at the heart of the death penalty. And that's how decisions were being made. Either the race of the defendant or the race of the victim was controlling, either, either one. Is, is straight racism. And the, the, the majority, it was a five to four decision. And the majority said, look, um, you gotta be able to show racism in an individual case 
which is very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's really the, the, the way to show it is through statistics. So that the Supreme Court said, you got to be able to show it in an individual case. And they also went on to say something else really interesting, which was, if we acknowledge racism in the death penalty, how can we not acknowledge it in all of our other criminal law cases? And Justice Brennan, in dissent, said some said my favorite phrase of any Supreme Court case. He said what the majority, well, it sounds like what the majority is, is saying is that they have a fear of too much justice. And, and, and so, you know, he really nailed it. And so, you know, we do have racism in every aspect of the criminal justice system. But the one thing that's irrevocable is the death penalty. Once someone is dead, they're dead. And so, the, you know, I think a fair position is we're not going to end the criminal justice system. We're not going to just do away with the courts, but we can do away with a death penalty that is not necessary any longer. We've got prisons that can secure the community, and we have clear evidence of racism from top to bottom. So we shouldn't have something that is that is as irrevocable as executions. Do you think the current administration or the cultural moment will, could force that reckoning? So, you know, the Biden administration has said, they, they've come out and said that they're against the death penalty. Um, I don't think our, I don't think our, our legislatures um, are, are anywhere near ready to pass uh, abolition bill. We, you know, they can't even, they can't even pass the sun rising in the, in the, in the East. So I don't think we can expect any kind of a, of a bombshell. Um, Nothing bipartisan uh, is on the way. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen, but there are some things that, that, that the Biden administration can do. They can, they can take people off of death row. They can, they cannot execute. Uh, they cannot seek the death penalty. And, uh, and, and, and we're cautiously optimistic that the Biden administration is, is moving in the right direction. From another angle, it, it does make me wonder about your thoughts about the, I shudder to bring this up, but the current Supreme Court. Do you see as cases move up to this particular set of folks, um, uh, them taking on that ethical question of racism and the death penalty? No, I, the, the, the death penalty fight has moved to a state by state battle. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one, no one in, in my world thinks that it is reasonable that, that the United States Supreme Court as presently constituted is going to find the death penalty unconstitutional. Um, so, so, you know, I think it's, it's important to be realistic in the work that we do and it is realistic to think that that state by state, we're going to win this battle to the point where it will be unconstitutional because our our standards of decency have evolved, uh, where the United States Supreme Court will have no choice but to say enough states have gotten rid of this at this point. It's just it's not part of our of our of our standards of decency any longer. So that's that's a ways off. But state by state, we're winning this battle. And I think for, for good reason, as I've said. Well, it's one of the points that you make is that it's so overrepresented. I mean, states like Texas and Oklahoma 
don't know if it's the right way to say it, but they seem to love the death penalty. So, so, you know, the death penalty is being condensed into a small number of counties. Uh, uh, the, 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 so, so you're, you're right about that. There are, there are some states are going to be the last ones to get the message. It's kind of like Juneteenth where Texas didn't find out about it, you know, or, well, the, 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 the African-Americans in Texas didn't find out about it anyway. Who knows who, who did know about it, but, um, yeah, Texas, Alabama, Oklahoma—they'll be the last ones to 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 get this message that that we've moved on from this punishment. But I, I think a lot of states are gonna are are, are 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 thinking about it now. Even Utah is is very seriously considering uh, uh, ending the death penalty there. It, you know, even for conservative people. And we haven't talked about the morality of the death penalty. At some point, I wouldn't mind getting to that. But even for conservative people, for fiscally responsible people, you know, uh, 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 Oregon has only executed two people in 55 years. They were both volunteers. And by volunteers, I mean, they gave up their appeals. They didn't want to they didn't want to fight it any longer. So for all intents and purposes, Oregon's death penalty is symbolic only. Pennsylvania has only executed three people in in 60 years. All of them gave up their appeals. So, you know, uh, when we when we look at 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 these states with their symbolic death penalty, we're spending a lot of money and we're getting nothing for it. So, even conservatives are going to start thinking, why are we spending this money that could be so, so much better spent somewhere else? So I, I think we're going to win this battle for a lot of different reasons. Well, it sounds like you're circling back to the morality question about since we have all the statistics that even if you're a fiscal conservative, this is way more expensive than housing some right housing. Find even if that would would be your argument um, that it comes around to again that it's vengeance. It has to be for. Uh, Right to take a moral stance that if this is done, this must be done in in return, isn't that what we're left with? So I I I like to tell um, this story. I think it maybe it dates me a little bit. I don't really think it does because I think it's still around. It's a it's the story of the Lion King, and uh, and and so you know I watched the Lion King a lot with my kids when they were younger. The the animated version I'm talking about, and and if you think about the story of the Lion King, you've got Mufasa, who is this great leader, um, a, benef- a beneficent kind of leader of the, of, the, of, the, of the pride. And then you've got Scar, who is a heinous criminal. And Scar uh, commits this, this very awful crime. He intentionally murders Mufasa. Um, and he does it for, for horrible motives, because he wants to run the pride himself. And then he compounds the crime by basically framing Simba, the, the son of Mufasa. And he, he persuades Simba that, that he's responsible for his father's death. And Simba grows up with this awful guilt about, about uh, uh, what he did to his father. And then Simba grows up and he confronts Scar and and in what, what passes for a lion trial, they tumble in the dirt and Simba ends up on top of Scar. And Scar says, what are you going to do now, Simba? Are you going to kill me? 
And I stopped the tape uh, and I asked my six-year-old, who is now older than six, um, what she thought Simba should, should do. And she said, well, it's, it's not nice to kill people, even if they're mean. And so you think to yourself, and, and Simba ultimately says, I'm not like you, Scar. And he banishes him from the, from the, uh, from the pride. Scar then tumbles to his death because he doesn't accept the, 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 the punishment. But that's where the analogy uh, uh, ends because Simba does, uh, Scar does not accept his punishment. But imagine if, if, if Simba said, um, yes, Scar, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to strap you to a gurney and inject poison in your veins until you're dead. Every little kid watching that movie would go screaming out of the theaters and parents would sue Walt, the Walt Disney Company, right, for trauma. Um, and so, you know, it's so obvious to kids uh, and, and, and to parents that we don't want our heroes acting like a heinous murderer acts. And yet we've got prosecutors all the time saying, show this person, the defendant, the same mercy he showed the victim. Act, act as a jury in the same heinous, horrible way the defendant acted. Um, and so somewhere between the age of six and the age of you know, adulthood, whenever that adulthood is, we lose sight of the fact that we shouldn't be acting like a heinous murderer acts, that we want our heroes to be better than that. And so the moral question for me has always been a pretty easy one. You know, we shouldn't be acting that way. We should be acting better. And that, you know, the Lion King resolves the moral question for me. It also brings up the one of my thoughts about one essay that you say specifically about um, prosecutorial misconduct that um, that uh, that there's a thread that goes through the cases that relates to human compassion, humanizing the um, the convicted person, the full human story of their lives, and that one of the strongly used techniques is to keep mitigating information out of the sentencing. Can you talk some more about that? So, so I mean, there's a reason that jurors don't get to. Um, there's a reason that jurors don't get to talk with the defendant for a few hours before they make their decision. And that's because they would quickly realize that they were talking to a human being. It may be, an it may be a, a human being who had the worst day of his life. It may be a human being who's very, very impaired or low functioning. Uh, 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 there's many, many aspects that that might dawn on jurors when they talk to someone before deciding whether they should execute them. And so the system doesn't, doesn't allow, the death penalty system doesn't allow for that because we know that jurors would, would not return a death verdict because they would realize whatever the frailty, whatever the human frailties were, they're talking to a human being. So one of the most important jobs uh, a, 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 death, a, a death penalty defense attorney has to do is to quote unquote humanize their client. Let the jury know that whatever whatever the frailties are, this is this is the person in front of you, and he is in fact a human being. 
And of course, the other side of the aisle, the prosecutor is doing his very best to dehumanize the client, to make, to, to bring the person, the defendant to the, the 15 seconds of the crime and not the full kind of panoply of this person's life. So a prosecutor has an intent to limit the mitigation in whatever way uh, he or she can. And a defense attorney has exactly the obvious, exactly the opposite uh, uh, obligation, which is to, to let the jury know as much as possible about the, uh, about, about the, the, the person. I, I had a case once where um, we videotaped the children of the, of the client and the, the children clearly loved the client and they, and they said so on, on lengthy, they were too young to testify, but they said so in videotapes and the prosecutor accused us of manipulation. And my response to that was, what are you talking about? Would the jury rather execute this person without knowing that he had two little children who loved him? Or, would, or, or, or should they know that fact before making a life or death decision? It's not manipulation, it's information. And, and, and I think, I can't imagine there's any juror who would say, I'd rather know less about the person before I make this decision than more about the person. It's our obligation to make sure they know more. This might be a little bit of an aside, but and I think media coverage makes this so slanted. But as you're telling that story, I, I have this sort of split, not feeling, but I'm thinking of like BTK. I'm thinking about Jeffrey Dahmer, these high profile, um, a lot of times we're talking about psychopathic people, right? That I don't know if knowing the BTK killer would make someone feel he's more human. But, but I guess my question is gonna take a little bit of a right. Most of the people that are sort of high profile, none of those people receive the death penalty. Well, certainly, uh, I, I mean, when you're talking about an, the, the phrase that lawyers use is arbitrary and capricious. You can't have an arbitrary, capricious punishment. So you're putting your finger right on one of the most arbitrary aspects uh, uh, of the punishment. I mean, Charles Manson didn't get executed. Uh, 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 Richard Speck didn't get executed. They got the death penalty, and then and then uh, the law changed. That you know, there's there's so many as so many aspects to the arbitrariness of it. The Green River Killer uh, uh, didn't get the death penalty. The, the B, BTK Killer did not get the death penalty. Um, so so you know, let me just I I, I just want to side g- jump in for one second and say it, meeting the BTK TK killer may not necessarily lead you to think he's more human, but it may very well show you how impaired someone like that is. And as human beings, I I would like to think that we don't want to execute someone who is badly, badly impaired for any number of reasons, abandonment, uh, 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 neglect, uh, organic brain damage. Uh, There's so many ways that you can be impaired. And I, I think, I, 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 I do believe that most jurors would not want to execute someone who was badly, badly impaired. It's not the human thing to do. Um, but you're right. The, the arbitrariness of the death penalty 
it, it, it can't be avoided. It's, it's all over the place. The randomness of some uh, 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 poor uh, uh, intellectually disabled person getting a death sentence because he has a rotten lawyer and then someone who does a, a whole series of awful crimes but has lawyers that can show his mitigation in a way as to uh, uh, avoid the death penalty, it's pure arbitrariness. Yeah, just one, one more reason about, about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't even know. You would be more of the expert on this, but I'm thinking of it in contrast to the. You you'll know the case, but the the um, the guy who was doing a spree killing across the United States to cover for attempting to kill his ex-wife, who was put to death. It was an older man and a younger man. Oh yeah, uh, well, Muhammad and and uh, and uh, God, I can't believe I'm forgetting the young. Oh, Malvo, uh, Ma- Ma- John Muhammad and, and Lee Boyd Malvo, um, and Malvo was was a juvenile at the time. Uh, he, he, so so um, Ma- wasn't Mr. the older Ma- of the two executed? Mr. Muhammad was executed, and uh, 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 Mr. Malvo is 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 in custody, and 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 may one day. And may one day uh, uh, be be free. I th- apparently, I think he's done very very well in prison. He was a, he was a juvenile uh, uh, under well, the influence of a terrible yeah. man, and uh, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, but I just <laughs> pointed out in terms of like the media coverage, the inherent yeah. the outcomes still are sort of all the people we just talked about were white and. Malvo and Muhammad were not right, uh, but j- just to just to stay on the on the on the the kind of clickbait uh, media yeah. coverage that that we see. I often get asked a question about Ted Bundy. They always there's a, a, people like to say, "What would you do with what would you do with the poster child for the death penalty, Ted Bundy?" And I always point out that I would have done exactly what the prosecutor did, which was offer him a life sentence. Ted Bundy didn't have to be executed. He was so impaired that he couldn't accept a life sentence, but the prosecutor offered him one. So, you know, even the poster boy for the death penalty uh, uh, might not have been executed. Uh, You know, just one more little fact. Can you say more about that? Because when you say so impaired, do you mean because he was so... uh... Sorry to bring a little shrinkiness into it, but he was like a malignant narcissist. He could. Well, so, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I never met Ted Bundy, but um, the death penalty has been used a, a number of times by people who wanted to be executed. Um, they, 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 they couldn't commit suicide or they didn't want to commit suicide. Um, for whatever re- either religious reason or maybe they just couldn't do it and they, uh, they couldn't didn't have the wherewithal to do it. But people wanted to be people want to be executed. I think Ted Bundy might very well have been one of those people. Um, certainly he certainly he knew that he uh, he couldn't win the case. He couldn't win his case. He he'd already been convicted a number of other times and escaped. So so he wasn't. He wasn't going to go free. I, I don't I, like I said, I, I wasn't on Ted Bundy's defense team. I just know that the prosecutor 
wanted to resolve the case by offering him a life sentence. And for whatever reason, he couldn't bring himself to accept that life plea. But but I guess my real point is that that, you know, even the poster boy for the for the death penalty. Could have lived. Uh, the, the prosecutor did not think that the death penalty was necessary to do justice in his case. Um, the only reason he was executed is because he turned that down. Well, you also bring up the, the idea of impairment. And I think really clearly in the book, you bring it up in terms of severe mental illness and intellectual disability. Can you educate us a little bit on, aren't we supposed to not execute people of diminished capacity or suffering from mental illness? Is that part of our legal rubric or am I wrong? Well, I'm afraid that you are wrong, um, but barely. So, so we, we, if you're intellectually disabled, which is a, a, a phrase that, that for most of your listeners, I think will know, but it's, it used to be called mental retardation. Now it's, it's, we, we refer to it as intellectual disability. So if you're intellectually disabled, you're not eligible for the death penalty. And if you're under 18, when you commit your crime, you're not eligible for the death penalty. One state, and I think it's only one state, has barred the death penalty for someone who is severely mentally ill, and that is Ohio. Um, but you are still eligible for the death penalty uh, uh, if you are severely mentally ill. In fact, Andre Thomas, the, the man I referred to earlier who had taken out both of his eyes, and, and I, I hate to be graphic about it, but I think it's important in this context, he ate his second eyeball because he was afraid the government would put it back in his head. That's how mentally ill he was and is. Um, so, so um, you know, we can't, uh, we can still execute someone who is severely mentally ill. The, the, the biggest hurdle I think we have is defense attorneys not doing the necessary job to make sure that the jury knows all about the person's mental illness. In the Andre Thomas case, the lawyers just did not do a good job of, of, of bringing uh, that evidence in front of the jury so that the jury could make a, a, an informed decision. A, a lot of the mental illness evidence just uh, uh, wasn't, wasn't br brought to the jury. And, you know, I think this country still has a, a, a problematic skepticism uh, with mental illness. We just, we see it as soft science as opposed to hard science. And, uh, I, you know, I think 50 years from now, we'll look back at our knowledge of mental illness, you know, the same way we look back at, 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 at putting leeches on, you know, on, on bodies for, for, for illness sake. We just don't know, we don't, we, we don't, we don't have enough knowledge of mental illness right now. And, and many people are skeptical of it in a, in an absurd way, I think. I agree. So just to pivot a little bit, at the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation, do you help train young lawyers around these? Thank you for asking me about the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation, because I tend to get wound up and forget about that. This is a, this is a, we're a, a small nonprofit who we work in Pennsylvania, but also across the country. And we, uh, um, we, 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 we can't exist without the support of, of uh, uh, people who, who, who help us as donors. I, I would encourage your listeners to go to atlanticcenter.org to get a, 
a good sense of what we do. And uh, just to answer your question, we do a lot of trainings across the state and 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 frankly across the country. Uh, I, I I teach pretty routinely at, at various conferences, and we consult with uh, uh, with with capital defense teams across the state and and across the country as well. Um, that's an important part of what the Atlantic Center does. So kind of tying into that, my question is, do you see the younger generation taking on the mantle of capital punishment from a different perspective? Like how so, is their culture affecting how they hold these questions? So, so for, for years, I tried to um, persuade young lawyers that, that, that capital punishment was not a career path. I was naively convinced that we would get rid of it and that they should not be, they should not be, you know, spending years preparing for something that was going to go away. And then a couple of elections got in our way. I'm thinking uh, uh, Bush Gore and then, and then 2016. And I won't even mention that anymore. And, and so, you know, now we need a younger generation to kind of pick up the mantle. Uh, I think that we are, we're much more attuned to race discrimination, as we talked about earlier. Um, I think the younger generation is more sensitive to mental illness. Uh, you know, all the things that we've learned over these over these last decades, and then really the last four or five, 10 years, uh, I think should be brought to bear and will be brought to bear by a younger generation uh, of, of death penalty lawyers. And I, I, you know, I may have been naive to think it would be gone by now, but the trend is clear and it's going to be it's going to be gone, whether it's in my lifetime or not, it will be gone. And uh, and so the next generation might might bring that home. Yeah, you say at the end of your book, um, the web of capital punishment is wide but thin and those fighting against it are close to breaking through. So I guess that's my last question is um, what makes you hopeful right now? Well, let me just say this. I, I mean, the state of Virginia, it's a, a, you know, that's a Confederate state. They, ex they executed more people historically than any other state in the country, more than Texas. They were a state longer than Texas, but, but they executed more people than Texas. Uh, they got rid of the death penalty. A state like Utah, a blood atonement state, um, got, is thinking seriously about getting rid of the death penalty. So it's, it's impossible for me not to be cautiously optimistic that we're about to break through when we have successes like Virginia and, and Utah. And of course, it's a two steps forward and one step back situation. Uh, I, I know that for, there are some people in Virginia that are thinking about reinstating it now. And you're always going to see Nebraska got rid of it. And then the governor went and, and, and brought it back. You're always going to see that two steps forward and one step back situation. But the two steps forward are controlling right now. And so it, 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 I think it's, it's going to happen. And it really is just a question of when. Just a little more specifically, you're saying state by state, you think it'll be given up and then it would be federally a change in policy or? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Javi. That was it. How do you see it? Yeah, I think at some point, you know, we, we, we things change because we change. And, you know, all you have to do is look at gay marriage to see how quickly 
the, the, the population perspective changed. Um, you know, over, over, over a decade, it, we, we, we really changed our evaluation of that public policy. And so uh, as states get rid of the death penalty, the public policy changes. And, and, and so, you know, if, if the death penalty is in a discrete minority of cases, then a challenge in the United States Supreme Court will be ripe. Uh, with, with intellectual disability, a number of states said, we're not executing intellectually disabled people. And then juveniles came along and, and a, a, a number of states said, we're not executing juveniles. And the court, the United States Supreme Court looked at those decisions and said, there's enough states that have said, we can't do this anymore so that it, it, it violates our evolving standards of decency. Eventually, we're going to have enough states say that so that the death penalty is going to violate our evolving standards of decency. That's a nice place to stop on. So thanks so much. Thank you. Uh -huh. It's been great. One of the things that I noticed at the end of the last administration was that there seemed to be an intentional upsurge in executions at the end of the last administration. Did you have something you wanted to add about that? You know, I think that when we see the steep decline in the death penalty, and, and we are seeing it, we're seeing a decline in death sentences, and we're seeing a decline in executions. And I think based on that, you know, right-thinking people can forget about the issue or be lackadaisical about it and not, not, not pay close attention. And so when, 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 when an administration comes along, a, really a lawless administration, and I'm not afraid to say that the Trump administration was lawless, they went and executed 13 people in seven months, uh, a, a, a historic record of executions. Uh, and, and, and with the, the Department of Justice's uh, uh, assent in a lot of lawless behavior. And so all I want to say about it is, it's important for us to be vigilant. Um, you know, while I'm cautiously optimistic that that this punishment is going to go away, and I and I firmly believe it will, that doesn't mean we're not going to have a lot of casualties before it does go away. And so I think for right-thinking people, I'm hoping that they will continue to be vigilant on this issue. Thanks very much.